Welcome, everybody, to episode 23 of The Hopeful Majority. I'm Manu Meal, and today we've got on Alexandra Hudson, an author, a thinker, and Alexandra's actually got a new book out called The Soul of Civility, which you can see right here if you're on YouTube. And if you're not on YouTube, get on YouTube. If you're on Spotify and Apple, Spotify and Apple, great. But we're also on YouTube every week, live Monday. Remember, we're building uh, a platform where we can have constructive disagreement at a time of deep, deep incivility, deep rancor, partisan pain, discussions, etc. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to fight outrage, build nuance. Last week, we had on presidential candidate Marianne Williamson. Today, Alexander's actually going to talk to us about the power of civility. Which I think is fascinating, especially given what's going on in the world. As always, I'm going to talk a little bit about my thoughts on this process, and then we're going to get right into the conversation with Lexi Hudson. I'll see you in the monologue. Cue the intro. So Lexi today is going to talk to us about the power of the word civility. And if you can, if you're on YouTube right now, you can see me holding up her her newest book called The Soul of Civility. Now, civility is a really interesting word, and the reason being is because as somebody that's 24 years old, you know, I've my lived understanding of American democracy, like many people my age, is, is one of constant discord. And here's what I mean by that. Somebody like me was born around 9-11, went to middle school around the, middle, uh, the financial recession 2008, graduated high school in the year that was 2016. So our first ever living memory of a presidential election was Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. You would say not role models of, well, we'll leave it there. It was a crazy election. And then 2020, we graduated college into the year that was the pandemic with COVID, the Black Lives Matter protests during the summer. Then 2021 and January, we had the Capitol insurrection and probably one of the most unfortunate moments in recent American history. Not a great sample size of American democracy or boundless progress. And then somebody comes along and says, well, you know what we need? We need a little bit more civility. And I'm sure as you're hearing this, you have a similar potential critique or a sense of apprehension towards what civility could help us achieve in this moment. You know, when we started Bridge USA at UC Berkeley in 2017, when we hosted that first ever discussion on campus after the largest protest in the history of the campus since the 60s when Milo Yiannopoulos came, um, there was tremendous pain. There was a lot of anger. And we wanted to host a space the next day for young people to just have a conversation, just to listen to each other, just to understand, not to compromise, but to see where we're coming from. Because I don't think we have a democracy if we can't talk to each other. It is that simple. That simple. And yet, interestingly enough, we actually shied away from using the word civil discourse. Now, I actually personally think civility is important. And yet, the word civil, and the reason why we didn't use it on campus in Berkeley in the, the, the February of 2017 was because of two reasons. One is that when people hear the word civility in our politics today or democracy, they often think, well, civility implies that we all hold hands, be polite to each other, sing kumbaya, have a conversation just for the sake of a conversation, for no real end that you show up with your convictions slightly reduced just so that you can compromise for the sake of compromise. There's this weird connotation of let's just go along to get along to civility. And the second reason that flows from that critique is one of privilege. A lot of people on campus would tell us, well, Manu, you know, civility seems to be something that's just reserved for the privileged. It seems to be something that somebody in a position of power can do and afford 
And yet it is not something that the average everyday person that is struggling or feels beaten down by society can engage in. After all, how can you tell somebody that's in the middle of a fight of their lives to be civil? It feels at best tone deaf and at worst a pathway to simply paper over their concerns and deep oppression. So those are the two critiques. Privilege, that civility is meant for those of privilege, and secondarily that civility means politeness, and really it's there to just go along to get along, but it doesn't really lead to any change. Because whether you're left or right, today in our society, a lot of people want disruption because it seems like society's not working for most people. Given that backdrop, I thought, well, who better to bring on than Lexi Hudson, who's writing a book called The Soul of Civility and is making not only an ardent defense of the argument, but is actually arguing why it is necessary for our current political moment. And I actually find the arguments relatively compelling. And in fact, they flow from our general theory and thought process of why we need dialogue in our country. In fact, I think what differentiates somebody like Lexi and I is simply just the use of the word civility, but I think we both mean the same thing. And so what I'm going to do just for the remaining part of this piece before we go into that conversation with Lexi is I'm actually going to give myself the chance to steel man the argument for why I think civility is important. See what I'm doing? I'm putting on a hat that I'm normally uncomfortable wearing and making that argument. Because imagine if on our politics today, people actually tried to make arguments that they disagreed with so that they could better understand them. And in this case, I don't even disagree with the argument. But I want to, uh, to make the argument, given when I read this book, why I think it is necessary. And in fact, as we look to our democracy, if you go to episode one or episode two of The Whole for the Majority, man, that feels so long ago. Episode one, episode two, we talked about love. We talked about the power of America. We talked about ambition. We talked about the difficulty of building what is such an ambitious multiracial democracy at a time where people are losing their sense of connection to each other. So three reasons. First, I think that civility, this notion, and let's be very clear what civility means. Civility is this idea and a mindset and a temperament for how we show up so that we can achieve something. It's a way to show fundamental respect to each other. So the first is that I think civility is fundamentally pro-human. It is pro-human. It, The notion of engaging in a conversation with somebody that is different than you is a sign of respect. For me, the people that I have disagreements with in person and have those disagreements thoroughly that go sometimes deep into the night are because I actually care about those people. I actually think that we're in this odd moment in our society where we've conflated disagreement with discomfort and disrespect. In fact, I think that disagreement, civil disagreement, is the ultimate show of I believe in you, I care for you, and I care for you so much that I want you to know what I think. Second, you can see I've got Dr. King's most recent biography on this book stand right now. And in fact, on episode, I think it was eight, we had Jonathan I who actually wrote this biography. And we talked about the phrase civil disobedience. It's in fact something that comes up throughout Lexi's conversation with me over the next hour or so. Civil disobedience. The three most successful movements in the history of the 20th century that focused on social change, Gandhi and the Salt Marches in 1945, Dr. Martin Luther King, Civil Rights, 1960s, Nelson Mandela, 1990s in South Africa. You know what the backbone of the most important successful social movements of the 20th century was? Civil disobedience, civil 
disobedience. When people had the most to lose, Dr. King, Nelson Mandela, Mahatma Gandhi, they didn't turn to violence. They turned to a belief in an articulation that civility is the only way in which we achieve the change that we're looking for, that to create coalitions, to reach people that are fundamentally different than us, we need to have civil disobedience, a sense that yes, it is important to show up civilly, but more importantly, what's necessary in our moment is that we need to be able to change the structure so that you and I can actually have a conversation, listen to each other. I know it's bonkers. At a moment where there's so much pain and so much discord in our society, we think about, well, we got to fight each other. That if, if, we're, if we're not being heard, we got to shout. If we're, not being, if we're not being heard when we shout, we got to fight. And yet the people that are the most to lose in society turn to a backbone that reconciled that you and I have a power to see each other for who we are. And the third reason is, as I said in episode one, the reason for doing the show. Imagine I told you that there's a society out there with 330 million people, 330 million people, all of whom look differently than each other, with different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different ideas, heavily armed, trying to make it work. Imagine you were an AI simulation observing planet Earth and you had to place a bet after seeing 100,000 years of human history where for 99,000 of those years it was pure violence and then for the last 1,000 they had this thing called a civil society. What would you bet on? I'd probably take the odds of 1 to 99 and I'd probably bet that there's no way this ambitious experiment can work. And yet that is why I think what we're doing with America is so fundamentally ambitious. It should inspire, motivate it. You're trying, if we get this thing to work, if we can enable a society in which people so differently than each other can see each other, love each other, importantly solve each other's problems, well, man, I think that probably is the greatest social innovation in the history of humanity. And I think the only thing that allows us to achieve that is civic dialogue conversations because the backbone of human progress has been the ability to talk to each other. We went from groups of eight to eight billion because of our ability to communicate. So at this moment where we're seeing deep violence in the world, where we're seeing a conflict unfolding in Israel and Palestine, where we're seeing pain, where we're seeing anger, where Every bone and nerve in our body is pointing towards fight. The greatest social change thinkers of our time put down their guns and picked up the power of words. And that is what I think is the soul of civility. Let's get on to the conversation with Lexi Hudson. Lexi Hudson, welcome to The Hopeful Majority. Manu, thrilled to be here. And I should say, welcome again to The Hopeful Majority, because for the context of the audience, we had a fantastic conversation before your book launch, and now we're re-recording it after your launch. And um, I really, really appreciate you making the time, because I know how busy it can be with, with sort of the launch and everything happening. So I appreciate you. No, my pleasure. And I know uh, I'm a total Luddite and a total technophobe. And that, like the the reason we're re recording was nobody's fault. It was just, you know, connection error or whatever. But I've done a recording where I've interviewed someone and it has been my error that caused us to have to have to re a re-recording. For example, like I kept hitting my ring on my computer and that caused the audio to be totally unusable. So I've, I've had to go back to people and be like, excuse me, I'm so sorry. Can I, can we redo this? So no, no. I, I totally understand. No. Well, you know, the, the funny thing was literally yesterday night, my friends and I were saying, I'm a, I'm an 1800s nerd. I have a typewriter. I, I like do all the things that you're talking about. I still read physical books and yes. 
Um, so I feel your pain on that front. But anyway, let's let's get right into it because I know the audience is very curious to learn about what you've got going on. So for the audience's sake, you've written this book called The Soul of Civility. And um, I can't imagine a better time to be thinking about this concept with all of the conflict that's happening in the world. And, you know, we're seeing so much discord and so much difficulty in having these very tough conversations and recording this two weeks after, you know, the conflict in Israel and Gaza. And we're seeing just the breakdown of conversation and dialogue. Could you just speak a little bit, Lexi, for why you think this book is important at this moment in time? My book is a humanistic manifesto. It's a manifesto for humanism. It, I hope that it readers walk away from my book with a high view of what it means of the gift of being human. Because as we appreciate our own humanity, we appreciate the humanity of those of others as well, even those that we disagree with, even those that we might be at war with, even those who don't look like us, who don't think like us, even those who can do nothing for us in return. And this is a really pivotal moment for a book such as mine um, for many reasons. It's easiest to dispense with the humanity of people we disagree with when the stakes are high. Those, that includes, especially in times of war, where we feel like it's an existential crisis, us versus them. This is especially true in times of election, and we're in the, we're in a presidential election cycle right now. And we, it, it becomes really tempting when the stakes are high to dehumanize those that we differ from, to dis, that we disagree with, because we want to win, and we want to be willing to. Do, we don't want to be bound. Um, by by think by you know inconveniences like decency and, and and morality, but the thing is, it's exactly when the stakes are high that respecting the dignity and personhood of our fellow human beings matters most. So that is why so, I'm hopeful that, that my book is 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 especially um, uh, useful to this moment. You're hopeful about the book. You're joining the hopeful majority. I know a lot of people are hopeful about the book, and I have to ask you, you know, when you think about this, framing it as a humanistic. Me- uh, message and a humanistic manifesto, I want to get to what it means to be civil. I want to get to civility. I know a lot of the people in the audience are curious about what you think about civility. I'm curious about that. But before we go there, what do you think it is about human nature that makes us much more likely to lean towards anger and oftentimes hate and violence as opposed to having that productive conversation? It almost seems to me like human nature is fragile in some ways. Could you speak a little bit to what you think about human nature and why in some ways it breaks down oftentimes in moments where the stakes are so high? We are profoundly social as a species. We become fully human and we thrive in relationship with others. And yet biologically and morally, we are driven to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are, the social and the selfish, are intention. They are just as much a part of who we are today as it was at the very dawn of our species. That is why this question, this question of my book, how do we flourish across deep difference? This is the most important question of our day, but it is also a timeless question. This is the defining question of the human species, of the of the human condition. Uh, and I'm so sorry, my son just walked in. No, you're good. You're good. Let me. It's never easy. It's yep. never simple. Nothing. No, you're you're good. Does the time still work, by the way? I want to make sure that you feel yes. good to go. Yeah. Okay. Um, for, the, for the folks, we're going to cut starting now again. All right. And, and we're back. And um, 
you know, Lexi, just, just a quick detour. When I saw your son walk through, um, one of the things we oftentimes forget doing this work is that, you know, you're a mother, you're a family member, you're taking care of all these things. I, the only person I have to take care of is myself. And the fact that you're writing this book at this time, I mean, it speaks to how much you care about this work. So I just want to give you space to, again, articulate. You were going on about the importance of human nature, but I can't help but think seeing your son, how important this work must be to you. Well, thanks for saying that. You know, I was talking about uh, a moment ago the tension in our in our nature, but there's a tension. Uh, I think there's like a lot of health and and dynamism in tension, like creative tension. Um, yeah. Like there's this you know dialogue and motherdom about like having it all, like doing it all, um, because and then the people feel the need to self-justify. No, I'm a working mom. No, I'm a stay-at-home mom. And they, they, you know, tell themselves stories about why that is like the better or worse thing. And then there, and then there are other women that try to try to do it all. And I think instead of like, you know, like digging your heels into one or the other, or like trying to have, do it all. But like, I think it's like healthy to kind of have these, have these two things in in mind at the same time. Like I'm, I'm both a mother and I have, creative output that I want to share with the world. And um, like there is, there is a bitter, Mm. it's bittersweet that I've written this book. On one hand, Mm. I could not write this book. I wrote this book because I wanted to make the world a better and brighter place for my children to live Mm. in. Mm. And at the same time, writing this book meant that I lost countless hours with them. You know, I was, I was up at 4am writing this book, but also, you know, time away from them during the day and, um, at at different times as well. And, and those are precious moments I'll never get back. And so there's like, and I, I, I lament that, you know, like it's, Mm. it is very bittersweet. Like I could not do it. I'm proud of it. I I can't wait to share with the world. I, I did it for them, but it also was costly in terms of, you know, time away from them. And so I think there is that tension there, bitter, bittersweet. You know, you know, what's powerful about this, and again, this is why like these conversations are so free flowing, is that you open this book actually with uh, uh, an ode to both of your kids. And you also mention your grandma. And what I what I find fascinating is you open this conversation, you think through it, you know, I bet a big part of this is that you being a mother and you being you having uh, a family informs actually the way that you think about the importance of civility, right? I imagine that your different complexity of identities has that in you. So I have to ask, and I was going to ask this later, but what has the process of actually writing the book been like for you? Um, And what advice do you have for people that are going through this? And let's say they are a mother and they've got kids to take care of and they're going to lose some of that precious time. What is your advice to them? When I first um, wanted to write this book, um, I, one of my friends, Tyler Cowan, uh, he told me not to do it. He, mm. he said, don't write a book. It's way too hard. It's way too much work. There are, there are way easier ways. Like if, if, if you just want to make a name for yourself, like there are way easier ways to do that than writing a book. Like, but the book is not the way to do it. And he's like, <laughs> he said, only write a book um, if you have a disease and like writing the book is the cure. And that was absolutely my predicament. Like I had these ideas inside of me. It wasn't about making a name for myself. It was. It was just about you know I had something I felt like the world had to hear, and what I couldn't not do it. My the, no, the the disease was that I had these ideas about you know, mm. how to heal society and ourselves. That yep. that is the book, and then, and then writing the book was the cure. So now that the book's yep. done. I have. Um, I have, I've said everything I have to say 
I, you know, it's out there on 400 pages. It's funny. Last week for publication week, I was in New York City doing publication week stuff, but also recording my audiobook. And so on one hand, I feel great about my book and I was reading through it and I was like, oh my gosh, what great insights. I'm so happy I wrote this book. On the other right. hand, especially near the end, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. Like, why did I, I think bet. it was a good idea to write such a long book? So well, well, duality, you, creative tension. I can tell you since we last recorded our first conversation, your mic sounds great. So I bet the audiobook <laughs> is also going to be excellent. And so I know that the people are dying to hear it. Like, what actually does civility mean to you? Um, because you obviously had that nagging feeling of this idea and you wanted to speak it, to it in, into this moment. So what does civility mean to you? So my story is that I was raised in this home that was very attentive to social norms and social expectations. So my mother, she's called Judy, the manners lady. So she's this internationally renowned expert on etiquette and manners and social norms. Not only does she educate my brothers and I in the right ways and means of, of politeness and niceness, she's also unbelievably hospitable and kind. Um, she she embodies the hallmark of true civility, other-orientedness, kindness to the stranger. Our home was this revolving door of, of homestays, of, of immigrants, newcomers to our community, um, just new people over for dinner into our home all the time. I was I am constitutionally allergic to authority to this day. I was growing up. I am to this day. I hate being told what to do. I hate being boxed and I hate, you know, just because someone says, says to do something, my immediate instinct is, you know, why? You know, give me the justification mm -hmm. for it. It. And so when my mother would tell us to set the table just so, you know, and, 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 and use forks and knives, I would be like, you know, why, why do we do it this way? And is it just because somewhere some sometime decided that we should? And like, what's the reason for it? And um, so I always had these lingering questions in my mind and I never got satisfactory answers. So, so that's kind of the context coming into this book. But my mom- Just, just really quickly, yeah. I would just say you had, a, you, had, you had a mother whose focus was etiquette and politeness. And yet you had this deep, constant desire to question that tension. Right. I know you're going there, but could you dive into that tension a little bit more and articulate why you think civility is something that might be different than politeness? Absolutely. So um, despite the fact that my mother, you know, said the rules of politeness mattered, you know, as, as I noted, I always questioned them, um, but I followed them and they worked really well for me until mm -hmm. I got to the United States Department of Education. So there I was in government and um, I, I was a very divided time and I saw these two extremes. On one hand, I saw people with sharp elbows, people who are, who are willing to do it and say anything in order to get ahead. And on the other hand, um, I saw people who, I th at first I thought they were my people. They were polished and suave and polite. And they were the people who would smile at me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And this mm -hmm. second contingent, the polite contingent really threw me because my mother had said growing up, manners were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here was a group of people who were well-mannered enough and yet ruthless and cruel. So at first I thought these two modes, the extreme hostility and extreme politeness were complete opposites, but I actually realized they're very similar. They're actually two sides of the same coin and both get to um, disordered loves. They're, they both instrumentalize, the bo both modes see other people as means to one's selfish ends, um, as, as, as opposed to seeing people who, as beings who are worthy of respect in and of themselves. And this experience clarified for me this essential distinction between civility and politeness. So politeness mm -hmm. is external. It's manners. It's technique. It's, it's etiquette. It's behavior. Um, civility is internal. It's a disposition of the heart. 
that helps us see others as our moral equals who are worthy of respect just because of our shared personhood. Mm -hmm. And that sometimes actually respecting someone requires being impolite. It requires telling hard truths, engaging in robust debate. So an essential distinction between civility and politeness. Hmm. So this is so interesting. Manners are a manifestation of your internal character. And it almost sounds like when you think about articulating that distinction from a philosophical standpoint between civility and being polite, that polite seems like a means to an end, whereas civility seems to be an end in and of itself. It's a, as you describe, a disposition. What do you think makes certain people more likely to have that disposition? And is this a disposition that you can train and inculcate? Absolutely, you can. So human nature, um, you know, we're deeply social as a species, but we're also, uh, we, we, we have this predisposition to, to meet our own needs before others. Like our self-love is like gravity. And we have to be taught and trained and reminded time and time again to overcome the selfish, the self-love in our nature, the selfishness that's in our, in all of our natures and, and put ourselves, put, put, surrender the selfish so that the social project can flourish. And that is why for Friendship, civilization is is fragile. Uh, it's never a foregone conclusion, but we're dogged at it. And and, and mm. as a species, we're 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 um, we're incredibly resilient. We're socially resilient. We keep trying to do this thing, and we and we inculcate in in our future generations through training and through education and through instruction and 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 modeling it for them. How how. how and, and, and granted, you know, some eras might have um, better and, and, and worser um, models of, of, of how to do this thing called life mm -hmm. together. Um, but those are all those are all different components of how we have as a species uh, inculcated these these values, these values of, of surrendering the ego so the social can flourish. And we've been doing this for a long time, as long as we've been around. For example, did you know that the oldest book in the world is a civility book? It's dated really? uh, 2350 BC from ancient Egypt. It's called the Maxims of Tahotep. And um, yeah, Tahotep was a visor of Egypt. He was the advisor to Pharaoh. He was in the room where it happens his whole life, like pinnacle of mm. earthly and worldly success. And he decided to not become Pharaoh. He was offered the job of Pharaoh, decided not to become Pharaoh. And he sat down in, in retirement and put pen to paper about the, the, the timeless principles of human flourishing. What's the stuff of the good life? And um, this, these are the teachings of Tahotep, and they're they're just as timely today as they were written twenty seven hundred years, almost five thousand years ago. It's remarkable. That's so interesting. Have you have you read uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius by any chance? I have. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the one of the I think it's chapter six. He talks about what it means to be human and the duty of human. And when you reference this book in twelve fifty three B C. I can't help but ask the question that there seems to be constantly a historical call for us to be civil. That there's a constant call for us to surrender our ego for the greater good. Why do you think humanity over time consistently falls short of that objective? Is it because that's the ideal and it's something that we're striving to? It's because of this gravitational pull towards self-love in all of our nature. We are, again, we, we, we long for relationship. We long to be seen and known and loved. We long to be in friendship and community. But we are constantly at cross purposes with ourselves. We constantly make decisions that make the proposition of the human social project precarious. And, and mm -hmm. we're, we're constantly, in, in ways large and small, we're putting our own 
own needs before others. And that is why in my book, I unpack why Larry David uh, may be the foremost defender of civilization. He's the founder of Seinfeld or the creator of Seinfeld, mm-hmm. and he's mm-hmm. the uh, the star of Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he, he calls himself in Curb Your Enthusiasm the social assassin. So he's this person that's constantly on the lookout at all times, like he, keeping other people's selfishness in check. If he sees you double parking in the parking lot, is he, if he sees you cutting in line at Starbucks, he's going to be the first person to be like, you know what? Not here, not today. This is society, sir. Like, get to the back uh, of the line. Like, yeah. and and that that's that that's funny because we see that happening all the time. Like, we're constantly mm. confronted with people's self love. Like, people choosing to put their own needs before the social project, before the before the communal project, before before others, and it annoys us. It's bothersome to no end. It makes life really grating and vexing. And so, we delight in seeing people like Larry David call other people out for their selfishness because it's the thing that we wish we did but we never do because we're like, you know what? It's just not worth the fight. But people like Larry David, those social assassins that are out there keeping people in check, curbing the the, the uglier parts of ourself, they make society work. Too many of them might make society a little bit vexing and difficult and not enjoyable, but just the right amount, it's good. You never know when there could be a Larry David around, you know, calling you out for your social infraction. That's true. Now I'm just going to be walking around in Starbucks looking out for a Larry David who's about to call exactly. me out. You know, I'll be honest, when I first read the title of the book, The Soul of Civility, what I assumed, what I think a lot of people assume when they hear civility is, well, this must be a book about how I have to be kind and be quiet and and hold back so that people can exist. Because I think there's this common conception in our world in which expressing an opinion seems to be posited against shutting up, when actually what you're essentially saying is that there's a balance. And so my question is, is there such a thing as being impolite and yet civil? Can you have both? Can you be impolite and civil at the same time? Absolutely. Sometimes the duty of citizenship requires us being impolite. So in my, uh, I'll just, I I love etymology. In my book, I do a lot of storytelling about the history of our words because I think it's helpful for us to remember. And so the etymology of politeness and civility supports the distinction that I make between these two concepts. So the etymology of politeness is polier, which is Latin for to smooth or to polish. And that's what politeness does. First of all, it focuses on the external, like polishing over something, um, uh, smoothing over something. And then it also is, um, it's, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of sweeping differences under the rug, focuses, focusing on the superficial, as opposed to giving us the tools to grapple with difference head on. The, the, the etymology of civility is kivitas or, or, or city, all things related to city citizenship and, and the citizen. And that is what civility is. It's the disposition and the habits, the mores befitting a, a citizen in the city. And all that to say, I, in, in my whole conception of civility, I reclaim the tradition of civil disobedience because mm. sometimes it is the duty of a citizen to not be polite, not just you know focus on sweeping differences under the rug, but to grapple with difficult differences head on. So Dr. King is one of my you know, heroes of civility in my book. And I talk about his process of purification. His, you know, purification was where he had all, everyone who wanted to be part of his peaceful, nonviolent resistance movement had to first cultivate a deep love and ref- mm-hmm. affection and respect. They had, to, they had to first cultivate the disposition of respect and love for their, for, their, for their fellow citizens, their fellow human beings whom they were protesting. And that love and respect is what then compelled and informed 
their protests, the sit-ins, the marches, things that weren't at all by any means polite, but they were absolutely befitting the duty of the civis, the duty of the of the citizen in the city. And they were a manifestation of that disposition of, of civility, of loving and respecting their fellow citizens, their fellow persons enough to say, look, I'm going to confront you with the ugliness. Hmm. The monstrosity, the hypocrisy in in your in your belief system, and, and I love you enough to do that. Loving you well would would um uh, wouldn't allow me to coddle you and and not confront mm -hmm. you with this. You know, it's uh, interesting you bring up the concept of love because oftentimes people ask, especially at our college chapters and high schools, like you know, what does it mean to, for example, love America? And and one of the things about love is you adore the things that you value, but at the same time you critique the things that you don't value, so that you can improve because love is a two-sided coin. In fact, I've also got King, King's most recent biography sitting here by a wonderful man named Jonathan Ike. We had him on, I think it was episode seven or eight. And I'd asked him a similar question. And I guess the thought that I have for you is when you break this, this tension that people often have when they hear civil, which means that civil must mean that I give up my convictions. What does it mean to compromise then in the frame of civility? Can you also have compromise? And, and is that possible at this moment in our politics? That's a great question. So civility both demands action sometimes, mm -hmm. but it also takes certain action off the table. So it demands action for in the instance that I um, just just mentioned a second ago. For example, Dr. King and and um, his his those he led cultivated that the love, the affection for their fellow citizens, and that that love and and respect compelled them. To, to, to confront them with hard truths, to take action. Um, and, and that for all of us, sometimes actually loving someone well requires engaging in robust debate. It, it means telling a hard truth. It means suspending the rules of politeness and politesse that might want us to avoid an uncomfortable mm -hmm. conversation, but actually respecting ourselves and others mm -hmm. requires that we have that conversation. So civility requires action sometimes. It also takes action off the table, certain actions off the table. For example, there's a reason Dr. King never allowed his followers to engage in violence um, mm -hmm. toward another human being, toward other people's property or person, because that was dehumanizing. He knew that dehumanizing someone else on the path to um, his 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 um, mission of of equal justice under the law for all human beings that undermined his his goal. So he wasn't willing to compromise his ultimate aim mm. uh, by instrumentalizing other human beings along the way by by seeing them as means to his end. Um, mm. And and so um, again, civility demands action. Sometimes takes action off the table. And so within that, within respecting someone's personhood, um, there there is a lot. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of wiggle room to to disagree and debate. But it's about how we do it. How can we? And, and, mm -hmm. and actually recognizing that how we debate with others, how we disagree, how we have conflict, that can be a source of strength. I think today we often we have two modes. There are two. There are people who like relish. They 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 they, they get a kick out of. The, yeah, the they relish the fight conflict exactly yeah. um or 
they they mm-hmm. shy away from it. They're just exhausted by all of the conflict all around them all the time. They just like they don't want to have to. They don't want to deal with it. And I think mm-hmm. both modes are unhealthy. You don't want to be too eager for conflict. It's a it's and, and you don't want to avoid conflict. That you want to respect someone to do to be able to do conflict well. That means not engaging in ad hominem attack. Certainly not engaging in violence. But instead saying, look, I, I'm gonna we're we're gonna have an honest conversation here. This because this might be uncomfortable for both of us. You know, and this mm-hmm. this might be intractable, but I'm going to keep the the goal, the relationship, uh, the bond, that's going to be front of mind. The that's objective, the objective exactly. is still to have that productive disagreement. A question that I we often get on campuses is how do you have civil disagreement with somebody that does not believe you should exist? What would your advice be to somebody that asked that question? Well, there are, I just want to start by saying there are, you know, hate groups today, you know, and I think that we've done a good job as a society identifying them and, and you know, banning them from, from polite society. I think the problem that we face on college, not, not just college campuses, in our, in our public discourse writ large, is that we feel as if someone who disagrees with us on a, you know, intellectual abstract or policy issue, we misinterpret that as like an assault on our identity and as an assault on who we are as human beings. And that's, that's not always the case like that, that, and, and that's a problem. I, I talk about this in my chapter on misplaced meaning and forgiveness. This is my final chapter in my book. I argue that as these traditional touchstones of meaning, such as um, family, faith, and civil society have been on the decline in recent decades, that people, uh, Americans, have relocated their ultimate source of meaning from these traditional touchstones of meaning to public issues, to political issues, to public policy issues. And this is bad for democracy because we're, we're overdoing democracy. We're, we're, we're misplacing our identity in these public issues. Um, and we're overdoing democracy by letting it kind of invade all aspects of our lives. And so when we have a disagreement, it's not just you think one thing and I think something different. It's like, okay, because we think differently, you, you you think differently than I do on this public policy issue, you know, you are therefore an existential threat to who I am. And mm. that's a profound problem for the deliberative democratic process that requires reasonable discourse across difference. But if everyone's in a state of fight or flight where every difference is all of a sudden interpreted as an existential threat, where it often is not, that's a problem for a democracy. So I, I am, uh, and, and, and a problem for a free and flourishing society, not just a democracy. Why do you think we're in that fight or flight constantly? Uh, because these traditional touchstones of of meaning have been uh, on the on, on the rescinded in recent decades, and we're and we're we're it's understandable. We're surrounded by. Um, you know, fear mongering every single day, the ubiquity of technology telling us why we have reasons to fear the other, the people who we disagree with, who are different from us. Um, I think it's, you know, I've been reading a lot about these people and I'm, I'm to some extent, one of these people who just don't read the news. I know that mm-hmm. might sound really radical Same. to you and some of your listeners, Same. but like, you know, it's just so exhausting and depleting of our emotional energy. And there's, there's so much that's lost in, in just worrying about things that we can't control, but, it, and, and, and there's so much lost in, in the emotional energy of um, of just being in this low grade, you know, fight or flight phase, as we talked about, that, that there's literally a metabolic cost to, to being in fight or flight at, at all moments and every, of every day. So when we're when we're geared to see threats everywhere, there are costs to that, and we're we're geared. And, and this is you're like, just a less happy human. 
it's you're just you're just you're just you're just constant it's like playing whack-a-mole with life but you know lexi one of my favorite things about this the reason why i have these conversations is because i get to sit in the shoes of the audience and wonder well you know, I agree with you on that. I think you're right that we do live at this moment where this constant fight or flight, it's exhausting and having civil disagreement is important. And yet I could hear somebody saying, ask Lexi, this sounds like something that only people in privilege can engage in. That there's this common refrain that to be civil means that you have to have operated in a position of privilege where you don't have to worry about the everyday impact of policies on your life. And I can understand what the response would be to that, but I'm curious, how do you respond to that person that thinks that being civil means that fundamentally you have to be somebody of privilege? So there are two main groups today that, you know, there's a group that says we, we just need more civility and politeness in public life to, to, to overcome our differences and flourish again as, a, as Americans. And there's another contingent that says no. And it sounds like this is the contingent you might be speaking to, that no, civility and politeness are part of the problem. They, 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 they're what got us in this predicament in the first place. They are tools of position, people in positions of power and privilege to keep to you keep, down to keep the powerless powerless to silence the oppressed uh they're the tools of the patriarchy of white supremacists and we need less civility and politeness in public life in order to move past these eras of, of inequality and and pursue justice in our in our world and what both these groups insufficiently appreciate is this essential distinction between civility and politeness that i unpack throughout my book and i'll just re restate it one more time politeness is etiquette, it's manners, it's technique, it's external, it's behavior. Mm -hmm. And those things can be good. At its best, civil politeness can perfect the disposition of civility, the disposition that actually respects others. But alone, just focusing on the surface level, how do we talk to one another and how do we you know, do the nice things to one another? That's never going to be enough to fix our deep differences or help us overcome deep injustices, past or present. What we need is the disposition of civility. Again, that's different from politeness. Civility is the disposition that truly respects others, that sees them as our moral equals um, and respects them enough to tell hard truths and engage in robust debate, not patronizing them by papering over um, difference or, or sweeping mm -hmm. difference under the rug. It says, no, they're, they're, I respect you enough to have these hard conversations. And one thing I talk about in my book is that civility is an inherent good but it is also an instrumental good. It's an inherent good because um, it's good in and of itself to treat someone with the dignity befitting to them as, as someone as 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 as, uh, as a human being, as as a member of the of the of the, of the human community. That is a good in and of itself. <clears throat> but it is also an instrumental good because past and present. Using civility is, is, is speaking truth to power, saying, I respect you enough to, to, to speak truth to power, to, to take to the streets, to engage in sit-ins. Uh, I, I love my country enough to do that, to make it better, to want to see the good in it and help it realize its, 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 its you know, founding ideals. That that past and present has been a way of, of achieving social justice mm -hmm. and equality in our world. And so I think that to answer your question, it's people who insufficiently appreciate this essential distinction between civility and politeness. I respect you enough to disagree with you, man. That's a different way to look at it because I think oftentimes when you're engaged in that very difficult, hard conflict, you're like, why is this person attacking me? Right. Or you're engaged in that conversation. You're like, I don't even want to disagree with that person. And I can hear somebody saying, what is your advice to actually engage in that disagreement? What you're saying is, 
but it's actually a sign of respect to have that conversation. And the other piece that's interesting is that you're talking both to the left, which is saying, well, how do you achieve social justice within this framework? And you're talking to people on the right that are fundamentally nervous about an attack on our institutions. You're saying, well, civility allows us to achieve that disposition. So naturally the question comes, well, we're about to go into 24 and it's about to be a very toxic, uh, difficult environment. We focus group this phrase, make politics less miserable. And it tested number one. Like everybody's like, yes, yeah, sign me up for that. I want to be part of the less miserable camp. What is your advice to the country when it comes to navigating 2024 in what you would describe as a more civil way? When I left government, I call myself a refugee from, from, from federal government, but I moved to Indianapolis, Indiana, where I'm calling and currently from right, right now. And um, my husband is from Indiana originally, which is why we moved here. And I just, I couldn't wait to get out of the toxicity of DC. And one of my first friends here, her name was Joanna Taft. She came up to me one day and said, hi, I'm Joanna. Would you like to porch with us sometime. And I had never heard the word porch used as a verb before, but curious and the fact that we didn't know many people in town, we went to her house that day and I realized that Indiana, that, that Joanna Taft in, in the heart of Indianapolis is staging from her front porch, this quiet revolution of social healing, of reviving civility, again, from the vantage of her front porch. On her porch that day, she had curated people across race, across politics, across geography uh, to her porch, not to have a curated conversation, just to have a shared space, to inhabit the same place together and to build trust and friendship that might lead to productive conversations across difference. But again, that's one big problem with how we're doing public life together right now. We lack fundamentally that basic affection and trust and that appreciation of, of our commonalities and shared loves. All we're doing is talking about the hard, controversial stuff all day, every day, and it's exhausting. And we're mm. just doing the, yeah, 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 just meeting at the level of, of difference and not having just shared spaces to come across difference just to be. Uh, and so Joanna's porch is that oasis. And what I love, what I learned about from Joanna was that, you know, she is reclaiming the power that she has in her civic sphere. She's saying, you know, I can't change the world. I can't change the 2024 election. Who's in the White House? Who's tweeting what? The scandal of the day? What, what the tragedy of what's happening in the Middle East? But I can change myself and I can make my community stronger and better and more beautiful. And I mm -hmm. realized that in doing that, she she is making our world a better and more civil place and that all it takes is the right amount, like what, one person at a time to, to decide to reclaim their civic and social sphere and be a part of – be a tool of healing with, with not even how they cast their vote, although that can matter, um, but also just how they live their lives and their everyday. We insufficiently appreciate the power we each have to make the world a better place. And the more that we appreciate, the more of us that come to appreciate um, the way in which the soul of civility can make our world better, we might be able to change our world. And what I th appreciate about that is there's a fundamental call to action, right? Because oftentimes a lot of these conversations can happen in the abstract. Oh, Lexi, what can I do about 2024? I'm just a random person in San Francisco. I'm sitting here. What can I do, right? And what you're saying is there's a fundamental call to action in your community that you can actually change yourself and instill that disposition within society. Naturally, I can imagine someone saying, how do you actually go about that? You mentioned the example of Joanna and porching and how she's having these conversations. What's your advice to somebody that's in their community? How can they instill this ethos at a time that is so extraordinarily divisive? 
What Joanna taught me is that it's not even about the porch. It's a way of engaging with others in the world. It's the disposition of civility. It's seeing mm -hmm. the other, the other as fundamentally more like us than unlike us. And it's this disposition that you carry with you wherever you go that wants to transform the outsider to the insider and the stranger into the friend. And that that's revolution. That's radical. And I, I, I unpack in my book this concept of um, the mellifluous echo of the magnanimous soul. So my grandmother was someone very similar to Joanna who just left this wake this echo of joy wherever she went, that that my grandmother, she was this magnanimous soul. She was someone who um, was just very self-assured and um, left every at her home every day wanting to make sure that every person she encountered was better off than when they met with her. And she maximized every single human interaction. Every single person she met, she treated as if it was like a profound gift, a delight, a joy, a privilege to share a space with them. And my grandmother, I'll be honest, she perplexed many people. Like people met her, like they're like, whoa, who's this like gorgeous blonde woman? Like what does she want from me? Like, you know, what, what is going on right now? But she blessed countless others, many, many more people. She just left them better off. And she, with her life, created her, her magnanimous soul, just the way that she chose to live her life, created this mellifluous echo, this beautiful echo that reverberated across time and across place. We're all familiar with stories of generational trauma, of vicious cycles, of one person's selfishness, that they're bad decisions that cause harm and hurt across generations, across time and across place. But we insufficiently hear stories of the inverse, where one great-souled person, one amazing man or woman, one magnanimous soul, to create with their life a virtuous cycle, a mellifluous echo that mm -hmm. creates beauty across generation, across time, and across place. So Joanna was one person that did that. My grandmother is another. We can each be that as well. It just takes us choosing to reclaim, to become artisans of the common good and reclaim the power of every human interaction um, to brighten someone's day and to put into, into play a virtuous cycle that can pay dividends into eternity. We may never see the power or the, 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 the effects that these these seeds of kindness and, and graciousness um, yield, but it's an act of faith. Society, civilization itself is an act of faith. It is an act of faith, and you learn something new every day, and the new thing that I've learned is mellifluous. Um, I'm not going to even try to pronounce that word, but I know that there's everybody knows somebody like your grandmother in their life. My grandfather was right. exactly that same way. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was having a conversation, Lexi, with um, Vivek Ramaswamy a couple of episodes ago. He's running on the GOP side. We're going to have, we just had it last week, Marianne Williamson on. We've had a lot of interesting conversations with political leaders. And I can imagine somebody thinking, you know, what your advice would be to our candidates and to our politicians for adopting your framework. And the reason why I asked that question is because something that came up throughout those conversations is that they were really nice and civil in person. I did not have a single bad interaction with any presidential candidate I've spoken to during this 24 election sort of series. And yet all of them almost conceded that there's this incentive structure in society to fight, that there's this incentive structure in society to have conflict. So what is your advice to our presidential candidates for how they should approach public discourse given your frame of civility? Right. So, you know, like I, like I shared, civility both 
demands action. It demands truth-telling. It demands you know, saying, I respect you enough to call you out on, on a hypocrisy or an inconsistency in your record. Or, you know, you said this. Like, how do you characterize that? Or you've done this. Like, that, that civility, that's actually a way of respecting someone. Not, it doesn't mean overlooking mistakes or, 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 or differences. It, 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 that, that, it, it enables us. It gives us the tools to, to do difference well and to thrive amidst difference. But it also takes certain actions off the table. So for example, we see a lot of ad hominem attack in our in our in our public leaders right now. But what it what so for my advice for public leaders would be like don't go low. Like the temptation is to go low, but you can go, you can go hard. You can be a robust interlocutor mm-hmm. without getting vicious. And without, you know, getting kids kids involved, getting people's families involved. Like there are um, certain guardrails so that, that, that have been in place for a long time that that uh and, and I mean I'll, 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 I know we're I know we're short on time, so I'll I'll end with this 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 one lovely um speech given by an English um lord, Lord Moulton. He was the war minister for World War One. He gave this speech to the English Parliament um at the end of World War One. It was about the Im- o- obedience to the unenforceable. And he was talking about how in times of um there there exists three spheres there is the in in human life there's the sphere of complete agency there's the sphere of human of of government action so positive law and within the within those two there is the sphere of of um the obedience to the unenforceable he called it and the obedience to the unenforceable is um People choosing to do the right thing, to respect others, even when there's no consequences and even when no one sees them, not, you know, uh, when, the, when there's no, there's no, um, yeah, consequences and no punishment reputationally or otherwise. And that obedience to the unenforceable is necessary to human flourishing and, and a free society in the small ways. Like it's what makes us want, like being gracious and kind as my grandmother and your grandmother were to, you know, taxi drivers and clerks at the grocery store, right? right? Like no one was making them do that. They chose to do that. And that's what makes the world go around. It's what makes us want to do life together. It's like how we treat people that we'll never see again and who can never you know, do us, you know, they, they, my, my grandmother and your grandmother, they weren't, they weren't decent to people just hoping to get something back from it. Right. Like that's the logic of the it world. It was just, it was just yes. because, it was and, just because. I, and I know we're, we're short on time. So I'm going to imagine, let's say somebody has been sold on the need for civility, right? They, they came into this conversation and said, okay, civility must mean that we all shut up, but no, actually civility is not contradictory with having convictions. I can imagine someone saying, well, civility must mean it's for the privilege, but you obviously articulated that somebody like Dr. King embodied civility as a method for change. Somebody says civility is not possible in society because our candidates are all crazy. Well, you've given some good insight for those candidates. So naturally the question becomes, and this is where we'll leave it. If you could wave your magic wand and you were able to realize a world thriving with civility, how would that world look different than what it is today? There'd be a world of, um, more great big front porches. <laughs> <laughs> no. Porches for everybody. And right. mellifluous wakes. Exactly. I, I think that's the word. <laughs> and mellifluous, yeah, a, a mellifluous uh, wake. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, Lexi Hudson, thank you so much for joining us on The Hopeful Majority. And for everybody, The Soul of Civility by the St. Martin's Press. Appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Manu. Well, thank you so much, 
Alexandra Hudson for coming on the whole majority. Thank you everybody for listening. If you appreciated that conversation, if you didn't appreciate that conversation, if you hated the dialogue, if you loved the dialogue, well, that's why this platform is for you because it's meant to have disagreement. That's important. And I learned a lot from that conversation. I hope you did. Remember every Monday, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your content next week, we'll be out with another conversation. Can you believe it's week 23? It's week 23. Let's cue the closing. I'll see you next week.